Welcome to the Classic Kicks Podcast. I'm your host, Nick Santora, and I'm back with another episode to talk to you about the digital magazine I just published. If you're tuned in, I assume you follow my social media channels and share some of the same love and appreciation as I do for classic and iconic sneakers, advertisements, marketing campaigns, and the athletes who wore them. For me, uh, the most influential time and the time that I grew up in was the mid to late 1980s and into the early 1990s. This is a time that many of us kind of refer to as the, a sort of golden age of sneakers. Now, I say that because it's a time that still resonates today and basically serves as the foundation for this modern sneaker culture. Um, everything that we know about the these sneaker heads and sneaker collecting, it was all it's all really rooted in this time. Um, and I say that because back about 15 years ago, when this idea of retro sneakers and re-releases and limited editions started uh, started really coming back out and becoming its own segment of the sneaker business, it was all rooted in re-releases from this time that I'm talking about. The first few pairs of Air Jordans, the Nike Air Force One, the Nike Dunks, the Air Max, um, you know, it all... it. Everything we know right now is really rooted back in these sneakers. Um, now, now these sneakers, the reason they resonate still today was because when you look back at that time, it was really the perfect storm of great products, genius marketing campaigns, dynamic athletes, the emergence of hip hop, how that blended together with the fashions and how it really ended up transcending sneakers and sports and really just affecting overall pop culture and this 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 so-called hip hop culture, both in the United States and eventually globally. Now, for those of us who are old enough to grow up in that time and be kids at that time, um, we, you know, we remember these things and, and one of the things we also remember is this idea of having our bedrooms basically decorated as shrines to our sports heroes and all the things that we aspired to be. So for me being 10 years old in 1987, when I think back and remember my bedroom wall, you know, the bedroom of any self-respecting 1980s kids, sports enthusi enthusiast, um, consisted of of the same things basically you had it was anchored with the posters you had sports illustrated posters and then you had these nike posters and costacos brothers that i'm going to talk about in a second but in addition to that this was pre-internet obviously so if you wanted to look at sneakers all day you didn't have instagram and you didn't have tumblr you had to go out and buy magazines of all your favorite sports and sports illustrated and flip through them and cut them out and scotch tape these things to your wall so a great bedroom at this time would like i said would be anchored by the posters with all of these magazine clippings mixed in uh, typically a nerf basketball court or a Nerf basketball hoop. And then if you were lucky enough to have a TV in your room and your parents got you in a Nintendo, I mean, that was just the, uh, that just sealed the deal, you know, games like Tecmo Bowl and RBI baseball. So with this idea of the bedroom, the 1980s kids bedroom of being your shrine, it's one of the ideas I had in mind when creating the first issue of classic kicks, digital magazine. So the first thing that we start off with in the magazine are Nike posters from the 1980s into the early 1990s. And there were three photographers from this time that took 
iconic shots of what I like to call the Mount Rushmore of Nike athletes. We're talking about Michael Jordan, John McEnroe, Bo Jackson, Charles Barkley, Andre Agassi, uh, just iconic photographs which became ads uh, that, again, the sneakers are still coming back out today and being adopted and loved by a whole new generation of, of sneaker heads. So, so the three photographers were Chuck Kuhn, Bob Peterson, and Bill Sumner. The first one featured and interviewed in the magazine is Chuck Kuhn. Now, Chuck started with Nike in the early 1980s and shot multiple sports, but is most well-known for his basketball images. Uh, his most well-known and iconic out of everything was he's the guy who shot Michael Jordan in Chicago with the Chicago skyline behind him in a photograph that has come to be known as the Jumpman logo. I'm sure anybody who's listening right now is familiar with this photograph and how the silhouette has become the logo on all Air Jordan products, almost every Air Jordan product from 1988 until today. But prior to Michael Jordan, Chuck shot posters that were of of Nike's basketball players pre-Michael Jordan, while Nike was still pretty much known as a running brand and just emerging in basketball. But they did have some all-stars wearing their products in the NBA, which were depicted in these early Nike posters. Um, now, at the time, Nike had a creative director by the guy named Peter Moore. You might recognize that name as being the designer of the first Air Jordan sneaker, and I believe he might have had a hand in the second Air Jordans um, before leaving Nike and going to Adidas and working on the equipment and some of their great stuff from late 80s, early 1990s. But Peter Moore was a genius on many levels, but one of the reasons is for coming up with these ideas to to depict the Nike athletes in these posters as, as sort of superheroes, as these superhuman alter ego characters based on their style of play and their nicknames. So you had George the Iceman Gervin sitting on blocks of ice in his poster. Moses Malone with a biblical reference parting the, the basketball seas. Daryl Chocolate Thunder Dawkins from Planet Love Tron. These were a lot of these guys you might recognize from the original Air Force One poster. These were the original Nike all-star basketball players. You could even say that these guys laid the foundation along with John McEnroe for Jordan to even arrive at Nike and have his own line and become a superhero himself as Air Jordan. So uh, the first interview in the magazine is with Chuck Kuhn. I talked to him about the early days of Nike before, like I said, before Jordan, what it was like shooting these guys and working with Peter Moore, which he shares some great stories. He tells me some specifics about shooting Jordan that day in the most iconic sneaker photograph ever, the Jumpman logo. So the magazine kicks off with this Chuck Kuhn interview with many of his iconic posters featured in the layout. From there, we move on to Bill Sumner, another Nike photographer who, whose interview I think is really interesting just because he remembers so many specifics about each individual poster that he shot. And he tells stories of this so-called guerrilla marketing where he would be in a van with a couple guys in the equipment and the Nike athlete already in uniform and just jump out. Uh, on a on a bridge or in the case of Franco Harris in front of a steel mill in Pittsburgh that was just the perfect place to get the shot uh, so we go through I don't even know at least 20 of Bill's posters and the specifics of shooting each one about shooting Detroit Tigers catcher Lance Parrish uh, 
with a real live tiger and having a guy on set whose only job was to just throw stakes at the tiger while he was waiting to be shot just so he wouldn't go nuts and flip out and, and eat somebody on set. And then from Bill Sumner, we talked to the third Nike photographer named Bob Peterson. Now, Bob was shooting for Nike before the Just Do It slogan even was invented. He was still shooting for Nike when it was really a running company, and their motto was, there is no finish line. So he shot some of the early 1980s and late 70s running posters. And then also, all three of these guys ended up shooting Michael Jordan very early in his career. So Bob's, I would say Bob's most famous photographs that became ads were the Michael Jordan and Mars Blackman stuff from 88 to 1990, as well as the Andre Agassi ads where he's wearing the full hot lava tennis outfit along with the sneakers from 1990. Um, so Bob shares some great stories too. He also shot for Life magazine and and he's just a, he's just another all three of these guys really share some great stories and just lend some context. To, to these photographs and these iconic images and posters that many of us had on our walls as kids. And, and, you know, to me, this stuff is worthy of being in a museum. And some of it even has. I mean, the artist Jeff Koons somehow got the rights to some of these Nike posters, particularly the, the Chuck Koons stuff back in the 1985, and had a museum exhibit that revolved around this. But, you know, to me, when you have the opportunity to preserve these images in high resolution and present them, uh, along with the stories from the guys themselves that created it, you know, it's just a special opportunity. And I thank all of these guys for sharing their stories with me and giving me the time and for, for the people at the Nike Archive to help out with some of the images as well. Now, I mentioned earlier that Peter Moore left Nike in the late 1980s. Um, and Nike still kept doing the posters, but they, they were a little bit different. I mean, they, Nike always kept this alter ego personality. And I, I don't remember if I mentioned it earlier in this podcast, but it was really the foundation for them of all their best marketing campaigns, right? So for me, you talk about Michael Air Jordan, who could fly through the sky, Bo Jackson, Little Penny, even, I mean, now it doesn't resonate as much today, but back then, David Robinson with Mr. Robinson's Neighborhood and playing off his kind of intelligent, nice guy persona in the ads and even pairing him with Charles Barkley, who was this real asshole, you know, they, they, just, they just led to some great ads at the time. But once Peter Moore left... Uh, this company kind of stepped in and took this idea of creating the alter ego superhero posters and, and basically pumped them up on steroids. And from it, I have to check the article again, but I think they ended up selling 30 million posters over the next seven or eight years. So with these Kostakos brothers, if you're too young to have grown up during that time, I mean, you might not care about what I'm talking about right now, but if you did grow up during this time and had these posters on your wall, uh, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Now, the Kostakos brothers have a great story. Most of these stories in this magazine are great to me because they're all examples of people that kind of went out on their own and did their own thing and are, are, are serious outliers, in my opinion, because of all done things that had never been done before. Um, now, these posters, are, like I said, they kind of had been done before, but not the way the Kostakos brothers had done it and not from two guys coming out of college in their early 
in uh, in their early 20s with no poster experience whatsoever and just figuring out how to do this and how to build this poster empire. So these guys, I mean, all of the biggest athletes from every sport of the time are depicted in a Costacos Brothers poster. For me, growing up in New Jersey in 1986, the the most important poster for me was my Lawrence Taylor LT Terminator poster. But there were posters of Mark Gastineau, Ronnie Lott, Icky Woods, Warren Moon, Walter Payton, Jim McMahon. I mean, the biggest superstars of the time. When when you go to basketball, there was a poster of Michael Jordan, Vinny the Microwave Johnson, Dale the Silent Assassin Ellis. I mean, I don't even know if these, half these people didn't even really have these nicknames like in real life. They, the Costacos brothers made them up. And I don't think they ever really expanded beyond the posters themselves, you know, like no one else ever called LT the Terminator, but, but that's besides the point. So there's a whole feature with, I don't even, again, I have to check and go to classickicks.com If you're, you're interested in seeing all this stuff, all the links are there, but at least 20 posters and a great interview with John Costacos of him. Just, just, just telling me about the whole process of how he and his brother built this whole business right from scratch, right out of college and just figured it out on the fly and created some of the most iconic sports images ever. I mean, again, back to the museum, they, they had a Costacos brother gallery exhibition a few years ago in New York city. And there's a story that Dana white of the UFC came in and bought every single poster. I think he dropped over 200 grand on every poster they had on display in some sort of bidding war with Alex Rodriguez. But so aside from the posters, the other thing I had mentioned earlier was the influence of hip hop on sneaker culture during this time. So um, another thing, too, about this magazine is just the way it kind of sorted itself out. It's, it's focused really on the photographers from this era. Um, you know, I, I interviewed a lot of the photographers that created these images. So when you talk about photography and you talk about hip hop, late 1980s, you have to talk about Ricky Powell. Ricky Powell's another great story of just taking it upon himself for making it happen, uh, to make it happen. He was selling frozen lemonade in New York City. Um, you know, he, he goes through all of this in the interview, but he's selling frozen lemonade in New York City as a substitute teacher back in 1986 when he opens up USA Today and sees that the Beastie Boys, who he kind of has a little friendly relationship with, are playing with Run DMC in Tampa. So what does he do? He he basically just brings his his ice cream cart back to the back to the station or wherever it goes and gets on a plane and flies down to Tampa where these guys are playing. He hitches a ride with some hillbillies in a pickup truck, knocks on the back door of the Tampa arena and tells the security guard to tell Ad-Rock that the Rickster was there. Ad-Rock comes to the back door, lets him in, and next thing you know, Ricky Powell is the Def Jam photographer, the unofficial official Def Jam photographer. Uh, and he shot, again, a Mount Rushmore of hip-hop artists from this time. The Beastie Boys, Run DMC, LL Cool J, Public Enemy. I mean, these guys are the forefathers of of, of hip-hop. Uh, so he should, I mean, this guy, Ricky Powell, also, if you're familiar with him, you know he's entertaining. If you're not familiar with him, you need to read these interviews because there's just some funny stories from this guy. I mean, just from his basic perspective on things to even... Things like smoking dust with Russell Simmons and having to go out and photograph public enemy afterwards. But I chose some of Ricky's photos that were a little bit more connected to sports and this kind of streetwear. Um, and he gives me he gives me the background of each individual photograph. So there's some really cool stories there from him that I know uh, you'll enjoy. 
The next photographer that I spoke to was Jim Goodrich. So there's a whole spread with some of his photographs and a great interview with him as well. Uh, again, another guy that just made it happen. Uh, another outlier who was not only at the right place at the right time, but knew how to properly take advantage of the opportunity um, or create the opportunity that was in front of him. Now, Jim Goodrich is an iconic skateboard photographer from the late 1970s into the early 1980s. Now, Jim's story was that as a teenager, he was a skateboarder himself, and his friends were some of, ended up being some of the most famous skateboarders in the world from that era. Guys, the Dogtown guys, Stacy Peralta, Tony Alva. So what happened with Jim was he's skating with his friends. One day he takes a dive and ends up breaking his arm. So what does he do? He still wants to hang out every day with his buddies. So he decides to pick up a, a camera and start taking photographs. Um, and now at the same time, skateboarding magazine is starting to emerge and they need photographs of these exact same guys that Jim is friends with and photographing every day. Uh, now, both with Jim and Ricky Powell, the photographs these guys took, I mean, you also have to understand that these photographs became the images that basically helped spread these movements worldwide. When hip hop was just bubbling, people all over the world were seeing Ricky Powell's images of these iconic artists. And that was their interpretation. That's the images they had to kind of romanticize about to play with their tapes and envision this whole hip hop lifestyle. Now, it was the same with Jim Goodrich and skateboarding. When Skateboarding Magazine started to, to really get big in the late 1970s, many of the photographs that, that were in the magazine were Jim's. Now, Jim was just a teenager at the time, but he had the advantage of being a skateboarder and knowing these guys to know what shots were important and should and, and needed to be documented and would make the magazine. So for him, he wanted to be in the magazine. And for his subjects, his friends, these other skateboarders, they wanted to be in skateboarder magazine also. Um, so, so Jim's advantage was going, you know, just the, the local street stuff, but also going to these tournaments and talking to his friends and figuring out what tricks they were going to pull off at this particular event and where he needed to be to take the best picture of it, to ensure for both of them that it would be featured in this magazine and kids all over the world would end up seeing it. I mean, when you look at Jim's photographs and especially if we're talking about, if we could, close our eyes and transport back to late 1970s and you were a kid who didn't live in Southern California was interested in skateboarding again these were the images that depicted that Southern California culture and lifestyle and the rise of skateboarding we're talking about the time when it went from this so-called sidewalk surfing to to pool skating and ramp skating when it really took off and 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 the style behind it that's another thing about everything in this magazine the one thing i had in my head was this kind of style of sport so it was the style of the athletes and the way they performed the style of what they wore even the style of the photography from these photographers uh, that's really important to me there's this thread of style throughout it even again in ricky powell's images you'll see ll cool j in the troop uh, the custom red troop LL Cool J jumpsuit, his whole his whole crew wearing it. Um, now, the final photographer I spoke to. Um, well, actually, before I get to the final photographer, let's let let's stay within this skate and and hip hop world. So so when we talk about hip hop, it wasn't just the connection to basketball. That's the obvious connection, and that was really influential at the time. But when you talk about this era, this late 1980s. Um, 
we can't underestimate the impact of of the tennis stuff, of the tennis sneakers, the tennis apparel, and this idea of the luxury European sportswear. This idea that it was hard to get and that it was expensive and aspirational. So of course these hip hop guys adopted this stuff: the Lecoq Sportif, the Fila, uh, the Adidas with my my Adidas Run DMC. Um, so I speak a little bit about two of the brands, you know, two of these brands from that time. We talk about Adidas and the rise of Adidas, and we talk about Fila. Now, both were European luxury brands born in the mountains, Adidas in the Bavarian hills, and Fila in Biella, Italy. But we examine the roots of both these brands and how they came up, uh, made in Europe, highly sought after, highly aspirational, and the evolution of both those brands and how they went from this kind of country club aesthetic of the 1970s into hip hop um, in the 1980s. And then in Fila's case, even solidifying their connection to hip hop even more in the 90s through their basketball sneakers with artists like Tupac and Method Man wearing the Grant Hills when his video with Mary J. Blige where he's wearing the Helly Hansen jacket and this whole pairing of that time of the Fila and Nautica uh, Timberland boots, polo, Tommy Hilfiger. I mean, this was a whole style from that time that was really major and again coincides with hip hop and the Wu Tang clan and and all of this stuff. But even um, back to the Adidas, you know, charting the rise of Adidas and the sneaker culture associated with them. For me, growing up in the 1980s, it was all about basketball, a little bit of tennis. Um, and, and my influences were all coming from New York City and the tri-state area. For a few of the guys I spoke to about Adidas and, and its impact in the late 1970s, their connection to the brand was through soccer. Uh, their sneaker culture was through soccer. So for them, they were traveling around Europe playing in tournaments and going to different countries and different cities and coming across sneakers that they couldn't find at home. Whether they were different models or different colors of some of the models, this was the sneaker culture of that time. So I speak a little bit about that. And there's plenty of old school Adidas catalog images from Denmark and Germany and the UK, as well as some old ads and, and just some cool stuff. I mean, you know, one of the things, too, I mean, the 70s stuff, I know the kids today don't really get into so much. And, and a little bit of a side note, you know, all of this stuff to me when it comes to retro and, and, and fashion being cyclical, it's almost like a 20 year cycle. So for me me being the age I am 10 years ago, I wanted this stuff from my youth in the eighties. Now the kids today want the stuff from their youth in the nineties. Um, so, you know, all of this stuff does come back and it all is still relevant. So, so I'm just trying to connect the dots when it comes to this magazine and just trying to read between the lines a little bit and making some connections that you don't typically see in most, uh, most sneaker writing, if you want to call it that, you know, the blogs are great and serve their purpose. Kids want to know what the new shoes are, when they're coming out and where to get them. That's great. But like I mentioned earlier to me, all of this stuff, you know, I'm almost an amateur archivist myself when it comes to grateful dead tapes and jazz albums and things of that nature. And, and I seem to become this amateur archivist or, uh, you know, semi amateur archivist when it comes to this, this sneaker imagery and these marketing campaigns. Cause again, for me, it's the history of sneakers, but it's also, it's, it's the history of marketing and some of the most, the greatest marketing campaigns of all time that we're still talking about today, other people other than me. And that's why I, I am showing them in this magazine. So, Oh, and then connected to Jim Goodrich, back to the skate, I also did a feature on the history of Vans and the history of Vans sneakers and their connection to skate culture, Southern California skate culture, and then the rise of BMX in the 1980s. Um, 
you know, Vans is still around today and still doing well, but I really focus on on their their heyday from from the mid 1970s to the mid 1980s when they were just really the brand representing California, Southern California skate, surf and BMX culture. Now the final the final subject, the final guy in the magazine is Roger Steffens. Now, Roger Steffens is I don't even he he's done so many things that it's even hard to put a label onto him, but I came in contact with him again when I talk about the style of sport it transcends you know just your 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 obvious connections but there's a picture of reggae artist burning spear that he had taken in 1986 in in St. Anne Parish Jamaica and burning spear is wearing full puma soccer outfit now I believe I have to check the article again but Roger told me that burning spear kind of ran or owned this youth center soccer camp type thing at the time and he was there playing with the kids so it was Great photograph of Burning Spear is what led me to Roger and got me speaking to his daughter, Kate, and I thank both of them um, for inviting me into Roger's reggae archives. Now, Roger today is known as the foremost reggae historian in the world. He's been doing this since like 1975, 1976, uh, when he started as like the number one reggae DJ in Southern California, whose show was eventually syndicated nationwide and then worldwide. Um, so Roger's been collecting buttons, pins, posters, shirts, tapes, records, everything you could imagine uh, that comes to reggae and Jamaican culture for the past 40 years. And he's held on to all of this stuff and archived it and has it displayed as much as he can seven rooms from floor to ceiling. So when he invited me to come out and visit this archive, me being a reggae fanatic and especially loving the old school roots reggae, um, I jumped at the opportunity. And I, again, I thank him and his wife and Kate for inviting me. And I thank my friends, John Fulton and JG for hosting me out in Cali and going to Rogers with me and sharing in this experience. I mean, it ended up being like a three to four hour master's class on the history of reggae, listening to unreleased bootlegs and, you know, Roger, also being a photographer and being the reggae DJ back in the 70s, he was interviewing all of the major acts when they came to Southern California. So he interviewed Peter Tosh and Bob Marley. Um, even later on, Keith Richards came and visited the archive. But this connection to Bob Marley led him to actually be Bob Marley's photographer on the survival tour in 1979 and live on his tour bus. So there's a couple images of Bob that Roger took that it still are just iconic images that have been basically bootlegged all over the world by this point on everything you could imagine and most of which uh, Roger has in his collection. But the one thing I didn't expect when I visited was Roger had, uh, you know, one of the first examples of what I would call sneaker influencer marketing. He has a pair of Rastaman Nike running sneakers from 1983. Now, before I saw these with my own two eyes in person, there had only been one or two crappy images floating around the internet, and they were labeled as Bob Marley's own personal shoes. But now upon further inspection, and we realized it was 1983, Bob had already passed by then, and Roger told me the story of how these sneakers came to be. Um, being uh, the number one reggae DJ in the area, whenever there was a live concert, Roger was the MC at these shows. He would come on stage and introduce the bands. 
and the artist. So recognizing that he was in front of all these people and such an influential guy, uh, he had a friend at Nike who said, hey, Roger, if we make you a pair of special Rasta Man sneakers, will you wear them on stage when you introduce these guys? And Roger obliged. And a few weeks or a few months, months later, whenever they arrived, he got the red, golden, green Nike Yankee running sneakers in 1983 with Rasta Man emblazoned on the back heel. So Roger showed me these shoes. He told me the story. Story, that's all in the magazine um, and he's just again a great guy and if you have the time and you're interested in what I'm talking about right now just google him or YouTube Roger Steffens and there's a video a great video on there that's about an hour long that's a tour with him and a woman of the whole archive basically and it's about as close to, to you to you could get it's as close as you'll get to actually being there and seeing all this stuff but many of the great stories and the things Roger Roger told me are are in Classic Kicks Volume 1, and you could also see them in this video. So I think that's pretty much, I don't think I forgot any of the articles. I think that's everything that's in the magazine. I mean, it's 124 pages. And for me, I, I wanted to, to really put some of these iconic images into context, and I wanted to show these things in nice, high-resolution format. So... So the, the magazine could be viewed on any web browser. I mean, it's built the same way as a regular magazine, the same dimension. So if you have a big monitor, you could really view this magazine very nicely on your computer. What I think it's really best on and what I kind of designed it for was the iPad or any other tablet. I mean, when, you, when you're holding the iPad in your hand, the pages fill up the screen. When you turn the iPad horizontally, it automatically shifts and recognizes it. And it's really just, the, to me, just a beautiful way to, to go through this and flip through it and spend time looking at the images and, and reading some of these stories and getting, and getting some perspective on them. Um, I also want to thank, before we sign off, I want to thank my brother, Anthony Santora, for building this with me. Um, without him, it really wouldn't have been possible. I also want to thank my wife, Jennifer. I want to thank his wife, Michelle, my sister-in-law, for, for all help and contribute inspiration and time and, and great ideas to, to make it happen. Um, oh, I forgot one person. I forgot one person. Stanley Chow. There's another interview. How can I forget Stanley? There's another interview in here with Stanley Chow, uh, uh, an illustrator or a graphic artist. Um, and again, another story of somebody who once he decided to do what made him happy within the realm of his of his craft, that's when he started seeing results. Um, so he'd been doing some illustrations for different magazines that he thought were pretty boring. And then on his own, uh, growing up in Manchester, UK, he was a huge uh, football, a huge soccer fan. So on, so so in his spare time, he started illustrating these portraits in his unique style of these footballers and putting them on his own Tumblr. Now this caught the attention of an editor at the New Yorker who who loved his style and ended up hiring Stanley to basically do several covers and portraits of every writer at the New Yorker. So if you're familiar with that magazine and the website and you know the headshots that you typically see on there those were all done by stanley so we have an interview with him of his process and how he got involved doing it and the success he's had through there and he's worked again with the new yorker new york times magazine with nike i mean it's just it's just great stuff and and the best part about stanley the reason that i thought about him and sorry at the end like this was because my brother is the one who came up with the genius idea to ask stanley to create the cover work the cover artwork for classic kicks volume one 
Now, both of us love Stanley's style, but quite frankly, his interview wasn't really the, the so-called cover story. The cover story really revolves around these posters. So it was my brother who said, hey, why don't you ask Stanley if he'll recreate one of the classic posters in his style for the cover? And to me, I thought it was genius. So I threw Stanley a couple different posters to choose from. And again, he chose what ended up being the perfect one in Moses Malone in this kind of symbolic volume one uh, introduction of or, or arrival of classic kicks with Moses parting the Red Sea. So, I mean, yeah, it's extreme, but to me, I got a smile out of it and I thought it was perfect. So, so yeah, so I mean, that's, that's what the 124 pages really comprises. There's so much in there. And again, if you're still listening right now, um, hopefully you've either downloaded this and you look through as I was talking about it, or if you haven't, go download it now, check it out, uh, help support the magazine. I got volume two already in the works. I mean, we have some good stuff going for volume two. And again, I thank all of the photographers and the contributors, everyone I just mentioned. Thank all you guys for sharing your stories and letting me be able to share them with all of you. Thank everybody here for listening. Uh, and I'll be back soon. We have more stuff to talk about and more things to show you. So I'll be back as soon as I can with another episode of the Classic Kicks podcast.